Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Al and with me is Jerry. We're just a couple of dopes who like to listen to records and talk about them. Thank you, Al. For our first series of episodes, we are going through the catalog of the legendary English progressive space rock band Pink Floyd. If you're listening to this, you are likely no stranger to the band. They are, after all, one of the most popular recording artists in the history of rock and popular music. The band's debut album is The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, released in August of 1967. At the time, Pink Floyd was led by singer, guitarist, and primary songwriter Sid Barrett, with bassist Roger Waters, keyboardist Richard Wright, and drummer Nick Mason filling out the roster. The Piper at the Gates of Dawn was recorded and released after a pair of successful singles from the group, Honor Lane and See Emily Play. In many ways, the first full-length album from the group gives listeners an extension of the style of psychedelic rock that those early singles and the band's lights and sound live shows prog- uh, promised. I almost said progressed because they are a progressive rock band. They promised you. So- they promised progressivism. Yes, they did, and they went that way. Well, before we uh, start diving in to the actual songs themselves for this side A to the Piper Gates of Dawn, let's talk a little bit about Pink Floyd, if you want to. Al, tell me about uh, the Pink Floyd. What what did they mean to you? How did you come across this band, this this progressive rock combo? Yeah, uh, well, just you know, briefly, I, my my first exposure to Pink Floyd, as I think most people, uh, you know, my age, my generation, it it came from the Dark Side of the Moon. That was the first album mm-hmm. that the first album that I bought of theirs. Really, not knowing much about the group, just sort of knowing its its status. Um, my mine as well. And uh, from there, my dad uh, gifted me a copy of Wish You Were Here, and I was like, Well, Great that's album. too. That's two for two, and I and I and I did the thing. Uh, you start with dark side, you go forward, and then once you hit the end, you go back to dark side and you go backwards. That was my, that was my uh, my route through the discography the first time around, and and I've been listening to them ever since. Yeah, I got you. Well, for myself, in case you're curious, I'll I'll tell you my story with the Pink Floyd, very much like yours. The first uh, album I heard was the Dark Side of the Moon. My older brother had it. And uh, presumably he still has a copy somewhere, or maybe even that copy. And uh, it was an amazing album, as everybody, almost everyone will agree. And um, uh, as the years went by, I listened to the albums as they came out. And within a few years of hearing Dark Side of the Moon, I started to work my way backwards and... But it was spotty. Here and there, friends would have a copy of Amagama or, you know, Saucer Full of Secrets, and I might hear a cut or a side. And uh, ultimately, by the time I got into college, I had heard what was out at that time. I had heard the entire, uh, the entire catalog as it existed at that time, including the Piper of the Gates of Dawn, or the Piper of the Gates of Dawn, which was... Uh, I would almost call it a revelation. It was a very, very different from Pink Floyd as they were when The Dark Side of the Moon came out. I'm, I'm going to say something now at the beginning of our first episode, which may be, uh, I don't know, controversial or shocking, but uh, I don't particularly like this album. 
I hear you. Um, it's <laughs> I, uh, I, I like it, but it's not it's not what I go to when I when I want to listen to Pink Floyd. I don't usually grab this album off the shelf. It's it's definitely um, it, the band, the group would uh, take a couple of different twists and turns throughout their recording career, and there are albums by the the band that I like a lot more later in their discography. I appreciate what this album is in terms of the history of the band and and where they were at this particular moment in in the course of their evolution um but and we'll talk about each track here in in just a bit um sure and and there are there are tracks that i do like on the album it's not a you know beginning to end kind of a thing for me in terms of you know there's a lot in the album that i think is is it has not aged gracefully and is not in tune with um the best work of the band later on I, uh, I appreciate what you say, and I, I agree with you for myself, uh, particularly because I listened back to uh, the album, not the entire thing front to back, but different cuts and different pieces of uh, the cuts preparing for this podcast, and it's really kind of grown on me. Like you, it isn't something that where I'm going... Ooh, I think I'm gonna go listen to P- the Piper of the Gates of Dawn. Yeah, let's let's get down. It's uh, really not one that you go through immediately or go to immediately uh, to get down. But there are there's some great music on it, and uh, quite frankly, there's some stuff on there that's crap. But <laughs> uh, you know, the the Pink Floyd at the time was coming off of or in the midst of doing stints at the UFO Club in London, and they were very much an alternative, experimental art house providing the soundtrack to the the party. It was a rave back in the day, and um, they were kind of in the corner in a tightly packed club and making noise, and some of that is reproduced here on the album, on some cuts, and in the middle of some cuts, um, particularly on uh, on side A, which we're going to be getting into in just a moment. Uh, but the album, listening to it, there are cuts on it that I think are great. There's, there's certainly a uh, uniqueness, and I mean that in a good way to it. There are other cuts on it that are, uh, yeah, I, you know, you guys had to fill out an album because you had to fill out an album, and this is stuff that you had played before. But it really wasn't a... There are some cuts that they're just not great. I mean, they're interesting in their own way. The band was still, in some ways, learning to play their instruments. They were very experimental. and uh, But there are parts of it where the fills, whether it's by Nick or even Sid Barrett, um, all of them, where... They're going, ooh, I see what they're doing here, and I I recognize that from later albums. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, well, we'll talk about the songs themselves. Uh, would you like to begin with uh, the opening track? I would, I would. Um, and, and by the way, um, one of the, uh, the great resources that I, I think you and I both listened to the album just in the last day or two just to to reacquaint ourselves and prepare. And, you know, there's tons of, of online resources to go through and find information about 
Pink Floyd and, and the individual albums and even some of the individual tracks. There's a great resource, uh, two of them actually, I'd like to plug right up front. And uh, if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you have an interest in the group, obviously. Um, two, two print resources. One is Nick Mason, the drummer for the group, the only member of the band who, who, was, an, who was a member from the word go all the way to, to now, whatever state the band is in now. Um, you know, he, he survived every roster change there was. He wrote um, sort of an autobiographical look at the career of the band. It's called Inside Out, A Personal History of Pink Floyd. An it's a very good book. Excellent resource for anyone interested in the group in general, but also uh, something that I kind of skimmed back. I read it years ago, and I've skimmed over it again in the last day or two. But there's also a big old coffee table book called Pink Floyd, All the Songs, The Story Behind Every Track. It's by, uh, I imagine that they're a couple of French gentlemen, Jean-Michael Gustin and Philippe Margotin. Um, another excellent resource, and, and I made heavy use of that as I was sort of preparing my notes for uh, for this recording, but the first um, the first track on the album, Astronomy Domine, is that how you say it? I always called it Astronomy Astronomy Domine. I think I remember in video interviews with members of the band, or at, at least with Nick Mason and uh, Gilmore, uh, calling it Domine. But it might be Domine, however you want to call it, any color you like. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't begrudge any any pronunciation that I hear. Um, it, 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 in my opinion, I think this is an excellent opening track. Now, I know I was a little Agreed. bit down on the. Uh, I was down on the album just a few minutes ago, but I will say that this is one of the stronger tracks, and and the of the songs that are on the album, probably the best choice to open the album. Um, if the uh, if the goal of the group as they were recording Piper was to capture what the experience was like to be at a Pink Floyd show during this era, I think Astronomy Domine is, is a good choice to, to give that feeling to the listener. Yeah, um, I agree entirely. In fact, it's my—it's certainly my favorite track for the side, and it's really my favorite track for the album, uh, for for a variety of reasons. But we'll stick to the side for now, for side A, which we're talking about today. It's—it's uh, it's the first Pink Floyd song on a Pink Floyd album. And it begins a series, it's the beginning of a series of record albums put out by the band that get, they go off in different directions, album by album, but generally they get better and better and more interesting. And it is very much a um, Pink Floyd as they were in the era. I kind of break down, certainly while listening to um, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, the songs on this album, uh, both side A and side B, as uh, two different uh, genres. One is Pink Floyd UFO Club, obviously material that they played live and were providing a soundtrack to the to the party experience going on. And then there's the world of Sid Barrett, and uh, this is definitely a Pink Floyd UFO Club 
uh, song, Start Strong, and it's, I always, when I hear it and think about the band itself, I'm thinking, here we go, this is space rock. Hey everyone, we can play. It's not just see Emily play. We are strong musicians, at least that's what they're, I mean, after the singles were very simplistic um, and you know, very much reflective of the era. This was a new direction, certainly to put on a record album. And um, it's space rock. There's NASA going on. It's 1967. Moon rockets. It's Pink Floyd being out of this world. Hey, everyone, it's a whole new world. And they're showing it to you, well, pretty much because they got a record deal. It's a great song. It's a, it's a, 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 uh, it's a Pink Floyd classic. And it's it's a it's the kind of song I think it, when you hear it, especially the subject matter, um, it's 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 very um, the the lyrics are just sort of a free association of uh, words that connect with space, you know, sort of celestial bodies, and uh, you have the mission control sounds in the background, the 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 spoken word bits. Um, I think it's a good example when you think of you know pink floyd if you want to uh have in in a single song capture the essence of the the band and i think you hit the nail on the head in its live form i think this is exactly what you would what you would want to play and what you would want to hear you can almost when you listen to the song especially if you listen to it through you know on some some speakers and you sort of fill the room with the sound you can almost feel or or picture the room where they're playing this song live in 1966, 1967. Yeah, it's, uh, I hear or see, however you want to look at it, uh, it's that English schoolboy having had classical literature uh, drummed into him from early on. I mean, there's Oberon and Titania, uh, Fairies in a Midsummer's Night's Dream, Miranda, Daughter of Prospero and the Tempest, and of course Titan is the largest moon of Saturn. But uh, it's there's that, and Sid Barrett was was very known for this, or at least in his in his songs, of not so much a double entendre, but uh, putting across thoughts and words that have double meanings or multiple references however you want to look at it. I mean, just looking at the song itself or the title, Astronomy Domine, Domine is the Latin vocative of speaking to, uh, and Domine is is referred to as the Lord. So is Sid Barrett or the Floyd saying, Astronomy, O Lord, or is it a domination of space with the space race? It could be taken any one of a number of different ways. Uh, if you're someone sitting on your bed in your room, staring at the record album and grooving to Pink Floyd's first album, it's a great song. It's a classic. Uh, you really can't... Well, anyone who has heard The Piper of the Gates of Dawn, uh, they hear that beginning, that 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 bass from Roger Waters that that lick early on in the 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 radio sounds and the voices and they know what's coming and it's a 
it's it's a it's a train. It's coming. And it's coming hard. Of, of the of the songs that are on this album, I think this is probably the one I've listened to and heard the most, um, the most often. It's got um, it's got a live version on the um, on the album release, the CD release of the Pulse show, um, which was uh, 94, 93, 94 tour. Um, 94, I think. Yeah, for the Division Bell, the the last or one of the second to last album that the group released. So they they you know even into the 90s, even into David Gilmore's current tours, uh, or I guess most recent tours. I don't believe he's currently touring. Um, reviving this song in in live performance uh, decades later, I think it speaks to just that, how the band felt about this song that they continued to play it. They played it for several years. You know, after it was, you know, after this album was released, and then brought it back multiple times, um, either as a tribute to Sid or as a way to connect with that part of the band history. Because Gilmore was not uh, a full-fledged member of the band by this point; um, he would come Very along true. for the next album. So, uh, it, it, it's a song that I think even the band members like to the point where they uh, they continue to play it, and it's um, it, it's it's a song that. You know they enjoy playing, even into into the current day. I was when as I was listening to it again last night. Um, I, I tend to focus more on um, the sound of the instrumentation over you know contemplating the lyrics. Although there are Pink Floyd songs later in the catalog where the lyrics just are unavoidable. You have to pay attention to them. But um, in this song in particular, you I, I noticed I was listening last night and paying attention to Nick Mason's drumming on this on this track and I hadn't really paid attention to the drumming but it's it's very impressive very um very noticeable what Nick is doing in in the background of all these uh effects laden guitars and um the the lyrics and the the different noises and chatter that's going on in the in in the track Nick Mason's drumming is is He's putting on a show in the background of this piece, and I don't know if it's the mix that I have, but it's you really have to focus your attention on it. But if you do, I think there's a good payoff there. That's a common theme to Nick Mason, and he he gets I'm not going to say a lot of critical dissing or anything like that, but he's certainly not regarded as a Keith Moon or a John Bonham or anything like that. But he's also been referred to as the perfect drummer for Pink Floyd. And he's more than that. He really is solid on the fills, and he hits it right. And it just, obviously, it's been recorded. So I'm sure he drummed a lot of bad notes in his day, which weren't on weren't put on recordings. But his he's very strong on Astronomy Domine. He's, uh, he fills it well, and it's the... When I mentioned the the train, it's uh, he's the engine there, and being the engine, he's been called that many times as well. You know, the 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 beating heart, not the emotional heart, but the beating engine within the uh, within the band itself, and it's very evident in this song. It's a it's a wonderful song. Yeah, I, I've heard his drumming in in Pink Floyd oftentimes described as. Um, simplistic or basic or just sort of keeping the time and keeping the beat and keeping the band together and he does do that and especially in in later albums I think his his drumming 
on record at least mellows to the point where he's he is that timekeeper piece but in this album and some of the early, other early sort of pre-dark side works um he's really riding his toms he's riding the the bass i think he had a double bass drum at this point um and a lot of what he's doing is is not what i would consider standard timekeeping drumming he's he's playing his instrument to be noticed i think um and then would not la- until later on sort of mellow that approach and just sort of serve serve the song in a more simpler way. I think now he's he's more of an equal member where Rick, you know Rick, Rick Wright is is has his keyboard fills, Sid is playing you know wild solos with effects and echo and reverb and and Roger is doing his thing on bass. He plays Roger plays all the way up and down the neck of his bass guitar. Um, I think Nick is just as, as as equal to any of them at this point in their recording career. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, he's certainly performing with the rest of them, as opposed to being the the sole timekeeper in the back holding everything together. You know, between him and Roger Waters, they're a rhythm section. They are absolutely even at this early-ish stage in their career certainly early in their in their recording career they had been performing gigs for you know a few years at this point but they were not the amazing musicians that they were to become at this stage but they are certainly a legitimate uh a rhythm section uh and, and it's it's clear on on this song it's it's they are the keeping it moving and uh, allowing space for Rick and and uh, Sid to do their fills and their leads, for that matter. Yeah, he's he's backing. Both of them are backing off at the right times to let the other band members shine. So, um, well, I mean, we we can go on and on about Astronomy Domine. It's 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 one of the stronger tracks, and I don't mind spending some extra time on it. But do you want to move on to uh, track two, Lucifer? Yeah, Satan? let's. Let's do that, by all means. Otherwise, we're going to go much longer than we intended, at least on this first one. So, Lucifer Sam by Sid Barrett. That got something I can't explain. Three minutes, seven seconds. And uh, I'll go ahead and start about this. Uh, about this, Lucifer Sam... It's about Sid's cat. It's about his cat. <laughs> and uh, yes, we're if you're on the internet right now, yes, it's a cat, which is many people have said, and I agree, is really what the internet is about. It uh, it's about Sid's cat, and you can look for deeper meaning if you want to. It's just a a fun song, uh, but what I really like about it is uh, going back to that whole swinging London thing. It's a great bass line. Uh, it's a very Peter Gunn sounding song. Uh, and it's it's almost a, I would consider it kind of a throwback. You know, they're, they're very Peter Gunn, as I've said, there's a secret agent vibe to it. You're talking James Bond or... Yeah. I you know I hadn't I hadn't made that connection until until just now when you're saying it but yeah I definitely agree it has that um, sort of I, I could see this being a soundtrack to a 
I don't know, maybe a, a get smart esque or a, you know something right. Maybe not something so absurd, but it, it's very representative of the the cool or the zeitgeist, if you want to use if I'll use that word in England, at least as far as popular music was concerned. This it, it sounds like something that would not be out of place on television with the secret agent or the private investigator or you know the man about town it's uh it's Sid has wonderful guitar on it he has note bending slides and um you know not even Gilmore could quite replicate it really it's uh very Sid has a very unique sound on this um it's uh it's it's a cool song. I only have it as my fourth favorite for the side itself. Uh, uh, it's there are other tracks on the on this side that I like a lot more, uh, but it's cool. It's also interesting to note that when they were recording this, it was known as Percy the Rat Catcher. Um, Lucifer yeah, the, Sam. The, the story I read was that it was. Uh, Percy the Rat Catcher is was, is or was some sort of a uh, animated uh, film that was going to take place. I, don't, I, I guess it never sort of saw uh, saw the light of day. But this the song was sort of meant to be a soundtrack for some sort of an animated film with that title. Interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that. I did not come across that in my research. But uh, that that's very cool. Actually, it's too bad it didn't come about. Uh, the song may have, might have taken on a whole different uh, life, I guess, uh, had that been the case. But think, not to I be. I think the song, you know, especially if you if you if you buy into some of the stories, you know, a lot of Pink Floyd songs, just by the nature of the band and the way people listen to their music, I, I think there's a lot of interpretations of songs and lyrics that. Um, you know, if, if presented to the songwriters, they would look at you kind of strangely, like, really, that's how you, that's what you took away from this. Um, right. But if, you know, if the story is, you know, holds that it's, it's, you know, Sid singing and writing, writing a song and singing about his cat, but also it's, it's called Lucifer Sam in the fact that, you know, the, you know, you see a cat's eyes in the dark and you, you, you see a cat that has sort of a, uh, sort of a menacing, Spooky, like demeanor, like it's it's got um, it's got the line in the song that cat's something I can't explain. I think this is a a song that would be ripe for a modern day sort of a an animated video. I would love to see an interpretation of this in in animated form uh, with you know silhouettes of cats, and I just kind of have uh, ha- have the idea that that would be um, an interesting way to promote this song is is with a current like an animated video. I think it would lend itself well um, to that medium. I, I can see that. And that's, that's, that's a very interesting way to, uh, to set it in the present, I guess. Uh, the, uh, you know, the refrain, that cat's something I can't explain, I think would do very well in the present day. Um, of course, it could be that cat, meaning that person, cat being a slang for a person, you know, what's that cat doing? That cat over there. Uh, but that cat's something I can't explain. It's a it's a great little zinger about the uh, subject of the song. And, you know, setting up for the next part of the song, which 
goes forward as it had before. Is it, you know, repeats? It uh, be a hip cap, be a ship's cap, and it's it's our first uh, presentation outside of the singles, of course, of Sid being whimsical with his rhymes. You know, just throwing stuff left and right. You know, somewhere, anywhere. Not so much of a rhyme, but you know, words being strung together to tell the story. You know, at which, night prowling, sifting sand. There's a lot of whimsical stuff going on, which is very cool. I like it. Which, well, and and that's something I put in in my notes here. It's there. There's two. There's two tropes on on Piper at the Gates of Dawn that um, I think lend to my sort of not as positive. Uh, uh, reflection upon the album as, as some might have. Um, the the first is is that whimsical nature of, of the lyrics or the subjects of the songs. Um, it's it's fine in small doses. I like it here. I like the childish sort of. Uh, it's it's about his cat and it's 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 got that out that childish outlook to it. Um, later in the album, and we'll get to some of those songs, the, I think the whimsy, the childhood whimsy sort of takes on too strong of a flavor. And it's right. one of the things that keeps me from fully enjoying the album when, and, and we'll get to some of those songs later on, but there's one inside too, in particular, where I, I just, it, 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 it spoils it for me. I don't know. We'll, we'll get to I it. Got, we'll get to it. I hear, I hear exactly what you're saying. As I, as I mentioned before, uh, the UFO Club songs versus the Sid's World songs. Right. This yeah. is definitely a look into the side in, inside Sid's world, and and they're they're two distinct. I mean, they're two distinct voices as far as this album is concerned. I mean, there's the driving, you know, freeform jazz experimentation, and then there's Sid telling stories and using word association and. And to tell his own little story, you know, as he's, you know, he's the guy singing it, maybe with Rick doing some backing vocals on it. But uh, it's definitely Sid as frontman telling his story. But and I, as a, and as a matter of preference, I, I I prefer the UFO stuff to the to the whimsy. Right, I got you as well, and I hear you as far as the okay, we're back in Sid's world again, and. It's uh, kind of nice and friendly and fun. Uh, it plays to the, there's a whole cult of Sid Barrett, which I'm sure you're aware of, you know, is given the, the, the tragedy of his story, the quote-unquote tragedy, but um, you know his battles, uh, which he ultimately came out of and lived his life you know, on his own terms. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's an interesting song. There's a lot of cool stuff going on, but it's not something that, you know, hey, I'm going to go rock out to Lucifer Sam. It, it's right. more, <laughs> it's, it's more of, hey, need a song about a cat? Here's one. We got one right here. Yeah, and, and su- subject matter for this, I think because it's the first track on the album that, that is in that, you know, column, in that Sid Barrett whimsy column. Um, it, it, it hasn't worn on me yet when if I've listened to the album front to back you know it's like okay this is this is fine and it has a strong enough instrumental uh, performance backing it where 
I, I I tend to I tend to like this one more than some of the other tracks on the album that would also fit into that into that Sid column. Um, yeah, the, but gro- if you, it, the groove on this is good. It's a, definitely a good yes. groove. I agree. I agree. Um, well, let's let's move on to to track three, Matilda Mother. I'll start here because this has, I mentioned that there were two tropes on this album that um, sort of get to me. Uh, the other is, um, there's a this song is the first appearance of it, and it, it pops up once or twice later on in the album. This song has um, a, a vocal performance, I guess we'll call it, of sort of making noises into the microphone to... I don't know. You, you, it's it's not quite scat, but it is uh, vocalizations that I I don't particularly like the sound of, especially the way that they are mixed on the album. There's a very it's a very trebly album. There's there's not a lot of low end to to the tracks. Um, so whenever the oh, whenever the group goes into this ch- ah, ch- ah, kind of m- making noises and and drowning it in echo to I, I again i'm not quite sure if i'm verbalizing it clearly but it it doesn't have an appealing sound to me and it, it sort of pulls me out of the track because i just i want to turn my my speakers down i hear you I, I, I understand what you're saying it's uh well my take on matilda mother it's uh actually this song is uh, well it's a sid world song but it's my favorite song on the side that isn't called Astronomy Domine. Okay. And, uh, and the reason why is, is Rick's keyboards on it are, they're wonderful. I, I love Rick's keyboards on it. And, you're, and part of it is having heard the Pink Floyd material that was to come. I'm starting to hear stuff out of Rick on this song that I would hear later on throughout the course of Pink Floyd's run as a, as a rock as a music band as a musical act it's um the song itself is very rich it's layered i i think it's very well produced and um it would almost be at home on the beatles revolver album it's it's very beatle-esque and i mean that in a good way it's uh it's you know rick rick singing on it is great uh the chorus oh mother tell me more is 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 wonderful. I, I, I mean, I like it a lot. It's uh, it's Rick's keyboard solo in the middle. I think is awesome, and their harmony at the end. I mean, they they do go into kind of this uh, this grind coming out of coming out of Lucifer Sam um, to go into Matilda Mother. There's this scary sort of industrial grind, and then it's you know, we're off into Sid's world again, but in a very, very good way. It's, uh, I like the song a lot. It's my second favorite of the side. It's, uh, it's, it's a good one. At least, I mean, I like it. A, I like it a lot. Um, it'd be interesting. I'm going to go ahead and note, I found this in my research, which I was not aware. Uh, Matilda mother, Matilda is a reference to, um, from a book called the cautionary tales for children, by Edward Gorey and uh, Hilier Belloc, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
Um, I'm going to say you did pronounce that correctly. Thank you. We'll, we'll go with that. It will probably be the only time I mention those names in the course of this entire series the, of podcasts. Or for so, the rest of your life, possibly. We don't Possibly know. so. <laughs> uh, unless I'm that guy at the party, which I could be. That is a good um, bad guy name. <laughs> very true. Uh, but the book itself is fairy tales, kind of very strange, kind of warped fairy tales where basically bad things happen to naughty kids. And one of those kids is named Matilda. So we're definitely back in Sid's world where he's pulling from childhood memories and, you know, spinning, from my perspective, uh, spinning gold from hay. It's, uh, it's some good stuff. I really like what Rick did with it and uh, the harmonies. And it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, the fact that the Beatles were making Sgt. Pepper's down the hall at this point is, uh, to me, this is evident. So it's, it's kind of a of a, a audio testament to what was going on with the Floyd, where they were at, and the Beatles, who themselves were the, a very singular musical act uh, of note. Uh, it's a testament certainly to the time and certainly to where, where the Pink Floyd was physically. And that's and, something I, I, I picked up on as I was listening to it last night. Um, this is a good um, a good track to to see what the what the band was doing to experiment in the studio with the studio with the sort of the nature of their recording and their mixing. Um, there's a lot going on in the stereo left right separation with um, with instrumentation and vocals on opposite sides, um, and then finding their way across and they sort of trade sides back and forth um, as you're listening. So if you're, if you're listening to this album, um, I would recommend uh, a good, a good stereo setup where, where your speakers are, are on opposite sides of the room and you can sit in the middle and get a, a, a more immersive um, uh, experience by hearing the left and the right and, hearing the swirling sort of nature as the the audio goes back and forth um we had not mentioned yet the the producer for this album and for for several of the band's early records was a man named norman smith um, that is correct and norman smith uh before producing pink floyd records was a sound engineer for the beatles he worked on i think all of their albums up to rubber soul right um so I, I think there's some influence coming from the Beatles camp, even though, yeah, the guys were right down the, the hall in Abbey Road studio recording Sgt. Pepper at the same time as Pink Floyd were recording Piper. And I'm sure there were opportunities for the two groups of musicians to interact with one another and to hear what, what the other was doing. But having someone from the Beatles camp moving over to produce Pink Floyd, I think there's uh, there's a couple of things that does it. It it opens up the uh, the Floyd for that sort of studio experimentation with a little bit of a guiding hand because I think by by the time Rubber Soul was being recorded, the Beatles were starting to itch for studio wizardry. I guess is is a good way to put it. They were looking for ways to utilize the studio, utilize recording as a way to enhance the sound of their their recorded output. 
um, having someone from that camp come over and produce Pink Floyd, again, guiding them through, hey, you can do this. We can turn these knobs this way and that, and you can get some interesting effects with, for example, the stereo separation. I think it's, um, I think it's, it's uh, serendipitous that they would have access to personnel like that. Right, yeah, and it's, it's certainly a much vaster world. Vaster, is that a word? It's, uh, it's more a much vaster. More, it's more vaster. More, it's more vaster. It's the more vaster blaster uh, than when they were cutting singles, where it was rehearse the song, get the song right, record it, and re-record parts of it as need be. Whereas here they had the time and certainly the the a large infrastructure to take it further to see what they could do i mean for for them and certainly for audio music recording in general they were on the cutting edge at least as far as what was available for commercial recording and uh you know short of movie studio and where it's they're just you know, getting working on it until it's done. Here, there were time constraints, but the still, the time constraints were were almost unlimited. And to have the Apple Studio and personnel, uh, or studios and personnel, to to pursue ideas, it it played very well for them. And it and as time went on, it played even better. Or vaster, I might say. It yeah. just uh, vaster, more vaster, more vaster. That's the uh, that's the word for or the words for today. I'm going to go with more vaster. Well, even a, even even to the point where you know you've got access to multi-track mixing. You've got multi-track tape. You've got um, some some luxuries as far as the the recording studio being open 24 hours a day. The Beatles were in there. Sure. And, and basically, anytime the Beatles want to show up, they show they they clear out the room and off you go, lads. So you know, there's there's somebody around whenever whenever the group wants to record. And I think by you know by the middle of their career, I think Pink Floyd had attained that type of status, at least in regards to you know e- EMI giving the the group access to recording equipment instruments and personnel that would you know just sort of at their disposal what do you what do you what do you need boys let's get it for you yeah and for all practical purposes unlimited access to it you know take as long as you need because certainly after dark side of the moon uh but it was uh we we believe that you're going to turn out a product that's gonna be popular and uh will move a lot of units so you know any anything you want, just get it done and keep on doing what you're doing. And they did not have quite to that extent when they were making this album, but I think that was, I remember reading somewhere, that was part of their deal here in that they had all the access they needed, um, just they had to, I think, had certain time constraints to get it done, but as long as they were there, they could make use of the entire studio and, you know, whatever was available at the time for it. And they took advantage of it. You know, they were, they were, they were fortunate in that they had uh, people who were willing to indulge them. If that was, I guess I, that I would think, be the yeah, best way I to put it. I think they had, 
they had believers at the record company and at, at the recording studio where I, I think they had that status fairly early on within a, within a couple of records. I think the singles were doing well enough. I think the live performances were doing well enough. Um, I know album sales, at least early on in, in their career, it was, you know, breaking into the uh, American market, breaking into the, the home European markets. Um, they were able to to get that kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for that the those perks that uh, that support really yeah, when you get down to it exactly yeah they they definitely had believers and I think that was based well I mean they had had demonstrated that they could record and make a product with their singles not that the singles did all that great but they didn't do terrible either and uh, they had a a reasonably large popular following in the club circuit and uh, they were seen i believe they were seen by apple and their producers as you know these guys are up and coming they're you know we're, it's it's a reasonable investment for us to allow them to you know we're, we're going to indulge them and see what they come up with at least until they you know fall flat on their face and the floyd never really did at least not entirely. Some albums are better than others, but uh, and some albums certainly did a lot better than others. But they never turned out crap. <laughs> it was something where right. you just you know throw it in the bin because it's an awful album. There was always something interesting going on, and most of the time there was something really really cool going on. Well, and and by you know just their their fourth album, you know, their by Umaguma, their you know they're given a whole record to just kind of play around with sounds by their fifth record. They're Adam Hart mother. They're getting orchestras to come and play sweet. Sure. That they have, you know, so, so very quickly in the, you know, within three or four years or five years, they're, they're given that status by EMI to, Hey, you, you want an orchestra? We'll get you one. You want a bunch of, you know, r random pieces of gear that we have laying around and you can do whatever you want with it. Sure. Go right ahead, boys. Yeah, they did a. Um, oh, go, go ahead. Go right now. I was going. You go right ahead. No, what I was going to say was finally, you know, closing out as far as uh, this song was concerned. This song, Matilda Mother, is concerned. It's uh, it's a really, really good production. You you could tell they definitely put some time into it. It's I think I mentioned earlier how layered it was. It is layered certainly, and it's 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 not. The type of song where, okay, boys, you know, one, two, three, four, let's jam. You know, this was a song they took and they developed it and worked with it and played with it and added to it. And then they, I'm sure they subtracted from it as well while it was going on. But uh, overall, the, the final result is uh, very charming. I think it's a beautiful song. Lying on an eider down Yippee, you can't see me But I can you Blazing in um, Would you like to discuss Flaming for a little while? The next Yeah, track? we're going to uh, continue on with Flaming um, which was called Snowing when it was being produced but once again, we are dropped into Sid's world. This is not a UFO uh, party song, but um, 
They may have played it live. I don't know. I wasn't there. It's before my time. But we are in the, in Sid's world, and you know, I'm convinced that Sid Barrett dropped acid while laying on a duvet in a meadow, and um, and recorded his experience. It's very Sergeant Pepper. It's Sid Barrett being playful. Childhood larks instrumentation builds and swells um i think you know sitting on a dandelion he was i think he stayed out all night in a meadow maybe on acid maybe not uh doesn't matter but uh you know in the morning though there was fog and because he was in england lucky he wasn't being rained on and uh it's a very atmospheric tune. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a trippy song. It's I, it's not my favorite. It's Sid's world. It's I like it um, actually more than I like Lucifer Sam, but less than I like Matilda Mother. I mean, it's it's uh, it's Sid's world. And if you're a Sid Barrett. Uh, if you're a member of the cult of Sid Barrett, which I am not, I mean, I respect what he's done, and, you know, God, what a unique voice, and, you know, what, what a unique musician and person. Uh, you know, he's definitely, this is definitely a slice of Sid's world, and, uh, but it's not really indicative of the, of, there's, there's not a lot of future for this in Pink Floyd. I mean, it's, it had its moment here on this album, and however many times they played it live, and uh, and then it's, you know, it's part of history now. It's it it's something that sits on this record. Uh, it's a neat one. It is a cool little. It's 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 Sid's world. So that's that's pretty much my my take on it. I mean, if you've dropped acid and laid on a duvet in a meadow. Uh, you've, you've had this, you may have heard this song in your head. It's, uh, it's, that's what it's evoking and that's what it's about. I don't like the implication that you think I maybe have not slept on a dandelion before. <laughs> well, not too many have and far less have written about it. Or, or sat uh, on a unicorn in the foggy uh, dew, you know, it's no doubt. I mean, I, we don't know each other so, so well that you can say that about me with any confidence. But, um, you know, I've I, not read your autobiography. No, not well, yet. I'll send you I'll send you the advanced copies. You can you can read that chapter. Um, look forward to it. This song exists. Yes, it does. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I feel about it. It's, it's there. It takes it's up space. there. It's we're, we're getting into that childish, you know, whimsy that that I was talking about earlier. That's not really my jam. Um, I think the, the, the acoustic, there's, I think it's a 12 string acoustic guitar that kind of gets strummed, uh, through the song is, is a nice touch. I like that instrumentally, but, um, the song is one that, that loses, for me, it loses its musicality sort of in the middle where they go into the, the sound effects, uh, portion of the song. Um, and, and to me that, that's just sort of felt in terms of, you know, listening to it today, I am sure in, as a contemporary listener in 1967, it would, it would, it would sound different to those kinds of ears. But for my ears listening to it now today, it, it does have, I, I can almost picture them, 
you know, putting sound effects together and saying, well, this is, this sounds trippy. Right. <laughs> this is what we should sound like. And uh, it does, it doesn't have much, it doesn't do much for me. Um, one thing that I was surprised to learn in, in reading about this particular song, this was a, uh, a single in the U.S. market. Did you know that? I remember reading that, but I, in the middle of this conversation, as you bring it up, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's not something I was thinking about when I was uh, talking about this, about this song, but uh, that's very interesting. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it doesn't seem How did like it, it do? It, it did not do. It did not. It did not do. Uh, it did not chart. And it's it's interesting just that they would pick. I don't know if it was the band's decision or if it was someone at the record company or someone in marketing over stateside saying, "Yes, this is this is the sound of Pink Floyd of all the tracks from the record that you could pick." Flaming is not one I would suggest uh, choosing as a single because I just can't imagine it getting airplay anywhere. I can't imagine even in 1967 with all the yeah. all West the, Coast, Hate Ashbury. I mean. Uh, Possibly, I mean, I could, I could hear it. I can imagine hearing it on the radio there, but uh, you know, in you know, Dubuque, uh, North Dakota, is it in North Dakota? Well, in Middle America, no, this would be like, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's <laughs> damn it's hippies. Got, yeah, it, it, the audience for this song, at least in in the public square, I don't, I don't think is there. I don't think you're going to push many units by. Uh, by by pulling the song up on your on your radio playlist, but right. yeah, flaming flaming for me is one of those ones that I you there are several tracks on the album that if you told me hey what do you think of that song by Pink Floyd flaming I would say which one is that again because it just right. there's, there's not much that I I listen to it I'm like oh yeah it's that one but then as soon as it's over I'm like what was that called again like it doesn't it doesn't stick with me yeah I um it's one where when you hear it again, it was, oh, yeah, that song. I remember this. Mm-hmm. You know, sitting on a unicorn. Haha, <laughs> that's cute. It's uh, Sid being Sid. It's, it's one thing that I've noticed from this album or I, you realize over time is, and this might be heresy, but I think it's a good thing, not for Sid Barrett, you know, the, you know, the tragedy there, but it's a good thing for Pink Floyd that, he did not continue with the band because I think that had he continued to be the front man songwriter for the Pink Floyd, it's hard to imagine him going off into another direction as music taste changed. Uh, Cause this is very much representative of the, you know, the, the, the counterculture drop acid, everything is wild and free, attitude, and it really, and it was really a very, very, you know, insular niche at that point. It never certainly became some sort of cross, uh, it really wasn't a that big a deal as it is kind of remember the whole psychedelic era. I mean, it was there, and it had its, you know, year, maybe a year and a half, of uh, popular recognition, and then it was gone. You know, the music moved on, and it's hard to say how the Floyd would have moved on with Sid Barrett writing songs like this. You know, would they have been 
Would they have caught hold in any other market? Would they have been able to make any other music besides this music, the world of Sid, and the, uh, the UFO, UFO Club, you know, jazz impro impro improvisations? It's, uh, it's, it's a question that will never be answered, but uh, this is not the type of song that, you know, it hasn't aged that well. It's, it's sort of an oddity. Yeah. I mean, there, parts of it are beautiful and, and cool and interesting and funny, but it's it's an oddity. And, you know, just if you if you look through the progression of the band and and the maturation of Richard Wright and Roger Waters as musicians, but also as songwriters, and especially with Roger as a lyricist. And then, you know, if Sid continues in the group, the likelihood that David Gilmour becomes a member of the band is is not there anymore, and so his contributions, both as a songwriter, as a as a singer, I think you know, he's he's of the, the voices that have appeared on Pink Floyd records. David Gilmour's is is the best, in my opinion. Yeah, um, he of the Golden Voice. Certainly. Yes, and his his guitar work and and all of that would not necessarily have been introduced into the band. I think you're right. I think it's it's a different. Um, a different career, and I, I don't think Pink Floyd continues with Sid Barrett for for much past 1968 or 1969. I think by 19, you know, late late, late very late 1969 into 1970s, you're starting to see the shift in popular music, and I think a lot of those psychedelic groups, like what Pink Floyd was at this point in their career, with groups like Jefferson Airplane, even even groups like, you know cream or the doors you know they're starting to find that they either have to change to stay relevant or they're being left behind sure yeah and by within a few years it was the the psychedelic pioneers like the soft machine and uh the nice uh are becoming what we refer to as progressive bands you know very musically intricate and at times incredibly dull but at other times, incredibly amazing. Uh, and this is a completely, the Sid Barrett world of whimsy, to go back to that word again. Whimsy. It, yeah, whimsy. whimsy. I forgot to pronounce the, the H. Yes. The H is important. In whimsy, um, it's hard to see it continuing. Uh, and you know, who knows, maybe it could have with Sid Barrett leading things, but... I kind of think not. It's a very unique little... This album is a... And of which this A-side is part of, is a very unique little niche. It's, 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 it's a one-off uh, yeah. in, in very many ways. And, and if you listen to selections from Sid Barrett's solo albums that he would make after not being a part of Pink Floyd, even though Pink Floyd band members helped produce those albums and even, even played on some of those albums. Um, I, you can tell it's, it's if, you like, if you like these kinds of songs from Piper at the Gates of Dawn, continue listening to the Sid Barrett discography because you'll get more of it and you can kind of hear how it's, it starts to, starts to catch up to you after a while, I think, if you're a listener. You're like, okay, we're still here. Yeah, if you're a, if you're a fan, and there are certainly... Sid Barrett fans out there, and it's not to sell them short to consider myself, well, I'm not really a Sid Barrett fan. I have huge respect for what he what he did 
and what he was able to bring to the Floyd. It's just not, he was just not a musical artist that I followed. Um, I made a point of, I mean, I've heard his albums, but I made a point of not listening to them before we did this podcast, before we started this podcast, because, you know, they were, I'm listening to Sid Barrett, who is the voice of this album. I wanted to hear him for this album. So I avoided those records, even for the perspective that it might have given me on this material. It was just, to me, it was it was not important. And it's uh, very much an oddity. If you listen to uh, David Bowie from this era, and Bowie loves Sid Barrett, uh, there's a lot of, I'm not gonna say exact similarity or, or, or anything quite like that, but you can hear the influence, you know, the Sid Barrett influence on David Bowie, certainly in this period, in the, you know, the, the what's becoming the late 1960s. Yeah, that, that, that first Bowie album uh, is full of whimsy. And sure, can, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, I, th- I think he covers, does he cover the gnome, if I remember correctly? Uh, yeah, I, I'd have to which look is and on, see, but yeah. Which is on side two. Uh, or side B, which we will get to on our next podcast. Right. But uh, I believe he co- he covers the gnome, but that's going from memory. I could be wrong, and because I often I often am wrong. I often are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shall we? Um, well, yippee! You can't see me, but I can see you. Uh, would you like to go to our next track? <laughs> I was hoping, I was hoping you'd say that, but I was also hoping you would say the title first. <laughs> I was hoping you would say it. I will try and pronounce it. Uh, I've never heard anyone actually say this title. I've only read it, so I call it Power Talk H. I I always read it in my mind as Power Talk H, but. In in reading up, I, I understand that some would pronounce it power touch. Really? That's, that's interesting a, to me. I like that. And I actually I like the way that sounds. Insofar in as like the 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 stylization of of the title is is power touch with letters removed. Sure. Um, and I don't know how accurate that is. That's you know maybe a second or third hand account, but uh, power touch is how I will be going from here on. That's a that's a great shorthand for the title, and instead of going power talk age, yeah. I mean that's that sounds like something by Emerson Lake and Palmer. Uh, <laughs> well, it's so this is an instrumental uh, power touch. Yes, it is one one of two on the album, and it's it's credited to all four band members. So this is this is a track that you feel came out of. Uh, either a studio jam or more likely a jam at a live show, a UFO club show um, that they were able to bring into the studio and find a way to um, to make an album version of that, which I always found, I find that interesting with, with any group that's known as sort of a live performance jam band, whether it's, you know, Grateful Dead or something, you know, even a group like Blues Traveler, some, you know, a, a group that can play a song for 10, 15, 20 minutes live boil that down to a do you have it in front of you how long is power touch how long of a 426 426 call it 430 yeah you know finding the essence of that song whatever that jam is that you're 
that you're plugging away at live on stage, what is the best four and a half minutes of that, and how can you distill that down into something that will fit between other tracks on a record? So I, I, I enjoy it in that sense. Um, the opening of this track, I, I have that, uh, you can check that box. It's vocal goofiness is how I put it in my notes. Right. <laughs> Which I, I'm not, I'm not down with, but once the, once the instrumentation, once the music picks it, pick, uh, picks up and it becomes more of a song and less goofing around on microphones, um, I think I think it's a really good track. I like I like what Wright is doing on he, he there's piano and there's organ on here. So we're sure. I, I imagine that I don't imagine he's getting up and moving to a different instrument. I I think there's some overdubbing happening uh, w- within the context of the studio recording of this song. Uh, Mason is 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 drumming um, and there's this light acoustic sort of guitar strum. It sounds slightly out of tune, and I kind of like it. I kind of like the way the instrumentation sounds. It's very dark and very. It has a very very sinister feel to it in the middle of the track, um, and it's bookended by this silly, goofy vocalization. I wish they could. I wish there was a, a an edit. I guess I could go in and make my own if I if I cared that much. But you know, edit the vocal goofiness out, and, right. and leave just the the instrumental performance. And I think it would be a much stronger track front to back, but also, you know, I think as an instrumental, as an example of the group working together and, and, and playing as a unit, I, I, I like this track for that. Um, it does have a very sort of, it, it, it goes and then it, it ends. <laughs> it, it has a definite like, okay, we're done now. And then it stops. Right. No need to play anymore. <laughs> we have completed the mission. Uh, my take on Power Touch is, uh, and I really like that title, it is um, unless I and unless I read the notes wrong and we're just saying power touch completely. Well, uh, if, <laughs> if 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 that's wrong, it's it's so wrong it has to be right. Oh, I don't want if, if it is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> right <laughs> or wrong. Well, power touch. It's um, it immediately strikes me because it is it's experimental psychedelic jazz, and nothing wrong with that. Uh, there are times where that's what I like to listen to. I mean, as long as it doesn't, you know, go on for, you know, 20 minutes or anything like this. And as I said, this is uh, four and a half minutes or just under. Yeah, it doesn't um, over. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It, it it's like I was saying. It, it feels like if it was born out of a longer jam, then they found the interesting parts and they they cut away the rest. Um, I wish they would have cut out the silly vocals, but it is what it is. Yeah, it's, uh, well, this is Pink Floyd at UFO, as opposed right. to Sid Barrett's world. This is Pink Floyd, you know, jamming and, and keeping the party going. And it's, uh, I think it's notable for uh, Nick's drums, because Nick's drums is really what's keeping it together mm-hmm. when they're when the silly bits are going on. You know, Nick is, uh, he's a rock that you can hold to, to see you through to the next point. And uh, the next point is uh, Rick Wright. He smooths it out and uh, and makes it... By the time we're done with the silly stuff, we have Rick Wright smoothing it out, and at least in my ears, I'm going, okay, this is, this is cool. I like what Rick's doing. And um, it's... Uh, s- sadly, or maybe maybe it's... 
it doesn't deserve this, but this is how I rated it. This is my least favorite cut on the entire on the entire side. Now, I, I, maybe for the album, I'm gonna have to look, but certainly for the entire for this side A, it's my least favorite cut. But not to really to sell it short, it's just I like the other cuts more. Uh, by the end of it, Roger and Sid are playing nicely off of each other, and you don't often get bass and guitar. Uh, going back and forth like that, and uh, but they do, and it's a it's a nice little touch that's going on, and uh, I've really liked that part of it. That uh, that makes it very interesting. But when all is said and done, I don't think there's a lot to talk about here. It's experimental psychedelic jazz. There really isn't a lot to you know unwrap. There isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of onion to peel away here. I I wonder and and. I think I like it more than you, um, just because I think I tend to enjoy, you know, if, if we're categorizing songs on the album into UFO Club stuff and Sid Barrett World, I definitely like the UFO Club stuff more than Sid Barrett World. I, I'm the same way. And way. I think of the UFO stuff, yeah, I think this is the weaker track in that column, but I still like it more than most of the Barrett World things. I wonder, I, I kind of... I, this thought just came to me. We, we talked about how the Beatles were recording Sgt. Pepper right down the hall from from Pink Floyd recording this album. And one of the claims to fame, although you listen to Sgt. Pepper, this isn't entirely true, but one of the things that Sgt. Pepper gets a lot of credit for is the idea of blending one song into the next without having um, a, a pause between each each track. You know, the first... The first handful of songs, the first two or three songs on Sgt. Pepper blend into one another. The last couple, two or three, blend into one another. I'm, I'm wondering why that approach was not used on on Piper. I think a, a track like this, as sort of an as a as a bridge between the previous song, Flaming, Flaming was the last one, yes, Flaming, and then into the next one. Take up thy stethoscope and walk. I think it, it it would be served better as a as sort of an instrumental bridge piece from one Barrett song into well the next song is a Roger Waters song, but um, more traditional psychedelic rock pop to have this as a, a bridge between two tracks. What do you think about that? Well, I that's a very interesting thought, and the, my only thing I can think of is is why didn't they do it? Uh, maybe for because the Beatles hadn't invented it yet. Yeah, we, that could be. And But that said, they could have been next door and, and gone, oh, check out what they're doing. Hmm. Because there's certainly examples all through this album and certainly on side A where it's, hmm, that's kind of Beatlesque or I like what we're doing. We'll try something like that. So as to why they didn't do that, well, they had not heard the Beatles' final production uh it may have been time it may have been not worth the effort it may have been we have these two tracks them being you know power touch here and the final track take up thy stethoscope and walk uh which we will get to momentarily uh it's almost as if these were tacked on and maybe that's not quite fair uh because it's you know, seven and a half minutes worth of material, these two uh, final songs on side A. But it's, 
it's maybe it was a matter of just too difficult or time consuming for them to uh, to do that blend that you're speaking to. Uh, or, or maybe they just didn't think of it. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, who, who one knows? One could guess. If, if we ever get Nick Mason on this show, we'll ask him. We'll ask him, and he'll, he'll say what? <laughs> he'll say, I can't remember. That's he'll my say, guess. I don't remember, and I care not to think about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, the, the band would sort of think about um, albums as a whole later in their career. Um, I think at this point... Um, in the band's sort of thought process and in just popular music at that point too, it was a, a singles-driven market. It was uh, you know, the album, you just the sheer number of, of non-album singles that were being released, not just by Pink Floyd, but by other groups, obviously, throughout that time period. You know, a lot more than now. And I think thinking about an album start to finish as a cohesive work, that idea wouldn't come along until later. Um, right. Well, it, the idea and was Piper there. Piper feels like a collection of songs and pieces sort of just put together without a, a cohesiveness to it. Yeah, there really wasn't, well, obviously, uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper's is widely regarded as the first quote-unquote concept album. Frank Zappa's Freak Out, uh, which came out a year previous in 1966, I think, uh, is very much a uh, uh, a concept album you know, with Zappa's conceptual continuity uh, leading things. There's a lot of strange weirdness and and beautiful, wonderful segues and interesting material going on. And but you know that was Zappa. He was on the West Coast doing his thing. And this is England at Apple Studios. So Sgt. Pepper's had not come out yet. Uh, it was, as you said, this this is a collection of songs. This is material they had that they figured would, well, we're putting out an album. Let's put these on the album. And with less thought to how they play against each other, or how they will play from one song to the next. Yeah, I mean, e the even in the sequencing, you know, you've got you, this song and Astronomy Domine from what we consider those UFO kind of songs, and then you've got all of these Sid Barrett whimsy songs in sure. between. It's 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 like listening to you know a, a John Lennon Yoko Ono album. It's it's back and forth, back and forth. Right. It's it's almost. To, I'm not going to say almost. I think it is. It's it's two different bands. Obviously, it's the same band members in the same studio working together, but it's a two entirely different sounds. And even if they were to go, hey, hello, let's uh, let's try and blend from one cut to the next. Uh, you know, well, where do we put Sid material? And where do we put our club stuff? You know, how do we make that work? And I'm thinking this, I think as you alluded to, the idea just wasn't there. The, yeah. the, conce the, con the concept of doing something like that just, it did not exist. And, and, I, and think you've got, I think you've got an album that would benefit from that, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, I guess. I was but, about to say, certainly in hindsight, absolutely. Uh, I, I think to, to play around with the sequencing, play around with, um, segues from song, one song to the next. I think this song in particular works as 
as a bridge between between songs better than maybe as a song in and of itself. Um, I would like to make one final uh, uh, trivia note about um, Power Touch before yes. we move on to the final cut. By the way, Power this- Touch, it, it, have you... It- it, it's. <laughs> I don't know if I like it anymore. I don't know if I like saying really well. Touch. Are we getting sick of it now? It, okay, it sounds well, like you've like, got the touch from like the Transformers cartoon. I don't know if you've heard that song. Uh, there's a Peter Gabriel song called "I've Got the Touch," and uh, <laughs> there's um, there's a uh, there's Invisible Touch by Genesis. But let's not go there. No, I really no, didn't like yet, that no. album. Sorry, all you Genesis fans, but we'll be. We'll be dogging on Genesis maybe someday in the future. I think but Genesis fans would agree with you on the invisible touch thing. Though. Yeah, I think, you're, I think I w- you're fine. I think you're fine. I, w- I would hope so. I would really hope so. But the final bit of trivia I want, or my final bit of trivia for this song, Power Talk H, or Power <laughs> Touch, is uh, this is the first use of the of the uh, Roger Waters scream made famous in uh, Careful with That Axe, Eugene. Uh, if you listen, you can hear Roger in the background. I can't remember where in the song, but it's there. You know, doing his. Um, I'm not going to try and do it here because it would probably be horrific. But that high pitched, cracking voice scream that Roger is noted for. Listen to careful with that axe, Eugene, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. No. I know. Exa- yeah. I know what you're talking about, and. Um... Speaking of Roger Waters, would you like to uh, close out this side with his his only solo writing credit on this album, Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk? Let's do it. And uh, first off, I want to say that Roger Waters called it a very bad song. And I agree with him. I agree with him as well. I mean, it's uh, it's not my the one that I like the least on this album. Uh, uh, the one being we just talked finished up talking about a moment ago. But it's uh, there's really not a lot to really like here. It's uh, it's definitely UFO, UFO Club. It's free form. Um, Nick has some great drum fills on it, and uh, Sid has some interesting guitar fills. It's a psychedelic jam, uh, very evocative in places of the Soft Machine, which also played the UFO Club in that period, was one of the acts that played there, so they were certainly contemporaries of each other. Um, It picks up speed as it moves on, and that's definitely a live uh, party trick, I guess you could say. Um, and it, it goes into a Rick solo, a Rick, Rick Wright solo decorated with Sid's guitar. And I really don't know what else to say about it that hasn't already been said. You know, this is UFO club, uh, decorative to the, to the party, to this party in swing in London. What your thoughts? My thoughts as I was listening to it, um, was just sort of in awe of the fact that Roger Waters wrote this because Roger Waters wrote some of the best songs in the Pink Floyd catalog. He wrote uh, I agree. some of the, he, he wrote the best lyrics 
in the Pink Floyd catalog. And as strong of a lyricist as he would become, it's fascinating to see this as um, an early iteration of, of Roger Waters, the songwriter. Because it is. It is, it is a throwaway song. He is, got, he's really yet to find his voice. It's it's almost like I thought he was writing a song like Sid like Sid would write, uh, making it sound like a, a Sid Barrett written tune, which, which I'm is sure, not is not his thing. <laughs> which is not his thing, but that's that that's the overall effect as far as you know. I'm in bed, aching head, gold is lead, choke on bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I can imagine Sid writing that. Certainly, sure. I, I could, but I could also imagine Sid writing that and going, "Nah, no, nah, it's not going to work." <laughs> A little dark, <laughs> uh, right? But I mean, like that's that's that that was my my overarching thought as I was listening to this song was, you know, the same man who would later on write, you know, we're just two fish, we're just two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl. You know, uh, the lyrics to um, the song "Time" on. Uh, dark side of the moon you know he would write the wall which is a a one of the better examples of a narrative story told in rock uh right. in an album format you know which is for from a lyricist standpoint is is one of the more one of the most challenging things you can do the fact that it started here it's it's it, it made me smile like wow it like he came a long way <laughs> 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 I I I think uh, Roger would agree that he's come yeah. a long way, and, and certainly I, from from this. I'm glad to hear wherever you pulled that quote from, where he 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 sort of disparaged the song. I'm glad to hear you say that because I was afraid to like say say it in in that uh, most concrete way of saying like it's not a good song. Um, it does. It <laughs> Roger does agrees. Have, yes, Roger agrees. I'm with you on that, Roger. Uh, I I would say. Um, that I do like Nick's drumming on this track. And this is another example on, on this album where, where Nick Mason, I feel, is an undersold star of, of a performance. Uh, he's, he's got a really good drum track. Um, it, it reminded me of uh, a song that we'll talk about in a couple of episodes from now, A Saucer Full of Secrets. Right. It, it has that feel to it where, again, he's riding the toms, he's riding the bass drum, and he's 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 making a performance out of his drum playing that is more than just we're keeping time to keep everyone together in the song. He's 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 found a way to make his drumming noticeable, but not it doesn't overpower, it doesn't take away from you know the the I has I even hesitate to word, use the word highlight because that's not what I mean. Does the song have a highlight? Uh, the focus of the song is not meant to be the drumming and it doesn't take away from where the focus is meant to be, which is on the vocals and the lyrics, but um, it's there. And it's, it's, if you're listening to the song, you, you, and, and you pick up on what Nick is doing and you tune your ear to listen to that part of the song. Um, it becomes a better song. I, I agree entirely. It, for, for the highlight of this uptempo piece, and it certainly is uptempo despite the lyrics, uh, is you know the midsection where you know it's 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 a, it's a psychedelic jam you know it's improv improv going on uh, and the band is rocking out in the middle section so you got some good bass from Roger as you've uh, mentioned Nick is on top of things and being very interesting with it 
and uh, Rick is, you know, he's sounding a lot like the Soft Machine as far as his, you know, what he's doing with the keyboards, which is a good thing because I love the Soft Machine. You know, themselves a, a very very interesting band, uh, all with with some wonderful wonderful material, but um, it's a psychedelic jam, and it's you can't have a psychedelic jam unless the uh, the drums are on top of things. And Nick is when people think of Pink Floyd, I think it's very common, obviously, to think of you know, what Roger Waters brought as a lyricist and really an exceptional bass player for that matter, and the moods that Rick Wright was able to create and, of course, the singular contributions made by uh, David Gilmour, um, as well as the whimsy of uh, Sid Barrett in his time. But uh, Nick Mason is a star. He really is a star. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's probably said so much it's almost become cliche, but he really is uh, a very underrated uh, drummer, uh, you know, on the level of Ringo Starr. And I'm not comparing the two as, as drummers or anything like that. But uh, Ringo Starr is famously underrated, and you can listen to the drums on "She Said She Said," and it's you know my jaw drops when I listen to that cut listening to what Ringo was doing. And Nick is very much the same way. His his he's he's driving and hard when he needs to be and he's not doing too much. He's not doing too little. Uh it's been said often that he's the perfect drummer for Pink Floyd. But he's a great drummer in his own right. I mean not just, you know, because he took the songs that he played on and he played on every one. Uh, to a different level where it needed to be and backed off where it needed to be. It's just uh, he he's an integral part, whereas the bass player can be replaced. Sorry, Roger. Uh, <laughs> and certainly the uh, singer can be replaced, as turned out to be the case uh, for uh, Sid Barrett. But uh, And I guess you could say a drummer could be replaced, but the sound that Nick Mason gets is... Uh, a very unique sound. I mean, the guy for a non-musically drained drummer, uh, he has a feel for things all across this album, and certainly on side A, which is impeccable. Uh, he, in a very big way, holds this album together. Uh, and there are so many disparate parts to this album, um, and in this song itself, uh, that... Nick is holding it together, and uh, you know you just got to kind of tip your hat to that. I mean, it's uh, he's he's an amazing musician in his own uh, low key kind of way. Yeah, and in my experience listening to drummers and following bands that have uh, you know long careers, it's always. It's always the drummer that seems to be the, the the key, the central figure in in keeping a band going. Because there's there's something to be said for for drummers with you know drum chops. You know they can they can do the flashy fills, they can do the the crazy time signatures. There's something to be said for um, the the drummers who just have the feel for the band that they're in. They know the band they're in. They know what the song is and what kind of drum part needs to be played for a particular song. And then there's also, 
I, I think the, um, you know, in, in Nick's case, he's, he's a drummer that has, you know, the, the chops to play. He has the feel for the song and he's, he's the communicator in the band. He's the one that is, uh, especially in a jam band, especially in a band that, that experiments and, and, you know, improvises so much within in the structure of their songs. You know, he's the one that knows where the song is going and can bring the other members of the band who are playing where he wants them to go. Um, you, you look at bands that, that lose their drummer and uh, they're never the same, you know, even a, you know, a band like Rush. Um, oh, change, yeah, well, changed, certainly. Well, you know, their first album, they, you know, they change drummers after their first album and hire, hire Neil Peart, and the band changes uh, from that point on. Uh, True that. And, and when Neil passes away, the other guys are like, we can't be Rush anymore. <laughs> you know, it, Neil was that, the drummer was that important to the group. Um, you know, my favorite band of, of all time is the Smashing Pumpkins, and they've had drummers in and out throughout their 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 careers, and the consistency of of a drummer like Jimmy Chamberlain to that band, and just how he speaks with the songwriter and and the other members of the band when they're performing, you can feel a difference, and you can tell there's a difference in not only the the performance but the songwriting. And I think Nick Mason for Pink Floyd is that kind of a drummer that um, can can really guide the band back home in a lot of places. And I think this this last track is one where he's doing that. It, it's not a strong song by any stretch. Uh, but he is strong within that song. Yeah, it's uh, he does well on it. I mean, thank God for Nick Mason. You know, where would the band be without him? Who knows? But uh, maybe that's a discussion for uh, another time. And there will be lots of time to talk about that because this is only the first side of the first album of Vinyl Sideways. Uh Nothing else to talk about. We've done with side A. We're um, done with that, yeah. Well, uh, if, if that's the case, uh, I'm going to say, and with that, the needle goes up and we pause to flip the record over. Please look out for our next episode where we go through side B. Love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode. Until next time, this is Jerry. And Al. On the Vinyl Sideways Podcast. See you soon and shine on.